Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. Um, I'm very lucky today to be joined by Max Bruner, who is founder and CEO of Anzen. Uh, Max, how are you? I'm great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. No, not at all, not at all. Um, I, I'm, of course, Alex Bond. I'm sorry to do that at the outset, but I, I, we were just saying I get too comfortable now and I'm kind of getting too comfortable. So, But hopefully most people coming back are coming back and know who I am. Um, and I'm certainly the least important person in this conversation because we're going to have a really interesting conversation, particularly um, around what's been happening at SVB uh, in the last week. Um, but before we do that, Max, um, it'd be really great if you could introduce yourself from the Anzen business. Sure. Uh, my name is Max Brunner. I'm the uh, co-founder and CEO of Anzen. Anzen is uh, both an executive liability insurance underwriter, but we also uh, offer software that protects companies um, from those types of risks. Specifically, we build technology that looks at all the operational exposures of a company, and we try to offer solutions around HR compliance, document scanning to make sure people are up to date on compliance with um, with their with their people, and then we also offer tools around cap table management and financial management, all with fiduciary exposures in mind and employment practices exposures in mind. So we've been building the company for about uh, two years now, and we're we're really excited about all the momentum and progress we're seeing across the U.S. Uh, we distribute our product all through brokers too. Awesome, awesome. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Um, I said before we came on, like genuinely excited about this area of insurance and where it's going. You know, we're starting to see this type of insurance offering come out, which which I'm super excited about because because you know I've been in insurance a long time, and I think we're quite guilty of, you know, we love talking about product in insurance and and for product that can mean we're just a variation on a word. Oh, it's, it's quite funny. <laughs> you know, and it's insurance not... product and actual and software product are very different things. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And, and, and you know, we can't underplay how important it, you know, getting the wordings right and changing the products from that perspective. But but I think that meeting of technology products and, and insurance products and, and then being complementary to kind of helping people manage risk is is a value add. And it's, it's that safety net that businesses need. Um, you know, I was liking it to we, we've seen a lot of this in the cybersecurity space, haven't we? We've, we've seen we'll offer you cyber insurance, but also cybersecurity products that, that go alongside it. Um, I saw you'd raised quite a significant round. Uh, was it a seed round last year? It was sort of $9.3 million or something like that. Um, that's right. About 10 that's, million. That's, yeah, that's pretty punchy for a seed round. Um, is there something about the macroeconomic environment that's that's driven the interest in in what you're doing and specific risk? Is, is that has that played hand in hand? I mean, I think that you know every startup is buying DNO is required to by their investors. We've seen an enormous amount of capital put into startups, um, obviously for quite a while. But the last just two years alone, this is a nice segue into SBB at some point, has mm -hmm. driven just incredible amount of money into companies and a lot more exposure. So both the employment practices risks, the lawsuits from people from your employees, and the board related exposures have just increased substantially. Mm -hmm. I suppose that's one of the things that plays into your hands from a market perspective. Like it, it's it's becoming a sort of mandated product because there's so many venture-backed businesses out there, whereas people that might bootstrap might be less aware because they're not being kind of instructed to do that. Do, do, do you find that? Is there something about the kind of profile of the business that you tend to offer insurance to? Are, are they more kind of venture-backed and, and that type of business? 
Yeah, so we're, we're really fortunate. We have a, a pretty broad underwriting mandate, but about half of our business tends to focus on tech companies, really like seed through series B, your, your first few founders in the door, all the way to maybe 80 employees. And then we also write a, a pretty broad um, other cross-section of the American economy, uh, companies up to a few hundred million in revenue, a few hundred employees, manufacturing, supply chain. So we can really do, even, even agribusiness, uh, a pretty broad uh, collection of companies. But specifically on the tech side, it's always when you raise that first priced you know, seed round or series A, it's written into the term sheet. I mean, it was one of the triggers, I think, for my co-founders and I to say, this is a really big opportunity and we need to bring a better product to all these companies. We're working so hard, but then they have to buy this, you know, 15 page PDF application product. That's one of the most expensive things you buy um, mm -hmm. for compliance. Mm -hmm. And um, so we, we, we were mocking the, uh, the, the sort of the product wording side of it, but um is part of that is simplification because i think a lot about risks um and i you know i'm always sitting here as as a guy that runs a, a you know a five six person recruitment business so i run a small business and so i'm always aware that i operate in the insurance industry and then i go to buy my own insurance and then i go it's the only time i feel a bit uh out of my depth funny enough talking about insurance and i'm thinking yeah the <laughs> analogy i always use is i'm i'm always trying to buy a professional indemnity cover and they go, well, how much cover do you want? And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, and I've told <laughs> this story so many times because I don't know what the average claim is. I don't know what the average claim is for a business of my size. Um, so is there an education piece to what you've done? And, and also, what have you done to address that? Is it simplification of documentation or, 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 or I presume many other things? Yeah, so let me, I'll take that in two pieces. One is just mm, sure. the kind of exposure that small businesses have. You know, in the US, there's, if you're if you're a small business over the course of a few years, you have as high as a 40, 40% chance of getting sued. I mean, it, it's a very consistent, um, at least on the employment practices side, you're managing people. Um, and, and there's a lot of concern around that exposure. And there should be, you know, the average claim tends to be like a quarter million dollars. So it's not it's not small. And it's not something that you want to take on solely as the company, you want some some insurance cover for it. Um, so that's usually what we we tell people. And, you know, all of this is kind of widely reported. Uh, I think since Me Too and Black Lives Matter and a lot of um, some of the sort of social issues that have gone on in, in the U.S., there's a lot more awareness, too, for uh, employee rights. And, and so you have a lot more litigation happening um, every year. And of course, mm -hmm. the other thing that we deal with is um, law firms have have raised their costs as well. So that's really what you're paying for is you're paying for the, the legal bills uh, that, that come when a claim occurs. Mm. Uh, given those figures, I'm wildly underinsured. I think on that. <laughs> most most people most people are actually. So, yeah, no, so that's, I know. and that's that's part of it. And then the the other piece is when you want to get insured, this coverage is just it's a real challenge to get a quote. Um, many times it can take up to two weeks, if not more, to even get a quote out of a broker. The applications, like I mentioned, tend to be many many very kind of nuanced questions. Um, and so what we did is we took those questions and we really tried to simplify them. So, you know, if you go online or your broker shares our digital application, it just takes like five minutes now to fill out the application. Um, yeah. And that was really important. Just build a better experience, lower friction to get the product. Yeah. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. And so it talks to me in practical aspects, how, how the, how do they use the risk management tools? Do, does, does someone 
getting insurance via you guys have access to all the tools or is it is it a value add or is it is it an additional cost or how does that work in kind of practical terms yeah i mean i think one brokers love working with us because it really gives them the ability to communicate their role as a risk um, manager and trusted advisor to a company so that's sort of number one we wanted to provide them a platform that makes them look better once, once a customer is um, is bound, then they get full access to our risk management platform. We call it management operations. Um, we, we, we think of everything that we do being around helping to protect management and the operations of the company. So management ops for, for short. Um, and when they sign on, they plug in their HRIS system, their payroll system, so we can see who's actually at the company. And then if they choose to, they can plug in all of the uh, the folders where they store like HR documentation. So the first thing we do is we score them based on the completeness of their HR file. And we really want to make sure that every employee has signed the right documents in the US, of course, with remote work, that they're complying across 50 states or wherever their, their employees live. Um, and so that's really the first step is just making sure that they're in good standing compliance-wise. Um. That's easier said than done, right? Isn't it? Though that's 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 that kind of feels like such a one hundred and one thing, but we know that isn't the case. Um, is it just the simple things people tend to be doing wrong? You know, is it is is it as is it as almost like mundane as that? Um, without, yeah, I suppose what I'm getting to is is that I think we think about these things as being complex, but it's essentially of like doing the right things in a simple and understandable way that that protects you from potential liabilities down the line. I'm so glad you asked the question that way because it really is that simple, but these things get really complicated fast. So imagine you're three people, you have a few documents, onboarding documents that you've signed, you know, you have an employee handbook. It's all sort of simple. The challenge is when you suddenly have 10, 20, 50 employees, you have suddenly a ton of documentation and it's really hard to track all this stuff. You're hiring people in other states, laws are changing. Your, your law firm handed you a zip file when you started the company and said, these are your core templates. But the problem is you've been adapting those for years now. And then one day you want to raise money and the money you won't complete the financing until all those documents are, are reviewed. And so what we're trying to do is just make it a lot simpler. Um, we've actually built our own, um, our own models based on major law firms all across the U.S., um, that will automatically scan all of these docs, all of the wording of them, looking for all the key compliance gaps and things that they should have based on the company and, and its locations. So it really is that simple when you use our product, but that's, that's exactly where we saw this opportunity to really build a CYA type platform for companies. Um, so they don't have to worry about the headache of managing this and sort of go to sleep at night feeling rest assured that, you know, documentation is in, is in a good place. The one mm -hmm. other thing I wanted to mention is a big tool we're about to release is our offboarding tool. So, you know, everyone does a lot in onboarding. The biggest challenge in employment practices is when you fire somebody or you terminate or someone leaves the company, the, there's always this question of, did I do it the right way? And the reality is there really isn't, I mean, there are no very good co-pilots for doing this well. And so that's exactly what we've built uh, to help people offboard people compliantly and, and hopefully, you know, part ways and in good standing. Um, and, and that's such a, I think about that from a recruitment standpoint, obviously coming from a mm. recruitment business, I, I, 
people keep people employed uh, and in my experience sometimes because they're fearful of managing that process in the right way they just don't know how to do it i mean I, this is i mean this is the uk example versus the us but i, I remember joining pretty big company had been going about 10 15 years i was hired as a manager there were about 75 80 people it was quite a senior guy we had to we had to let someone go for underperformance but they just wouldn't press the button because they were like oh uh but they're really difficult they'll make it hard for us and i was like but they've underperformed we've run a process they've not improved they've not hit the targets it, it, for me it was very simple but it was really interesting coming that uh, fear the only reason i knew how to run that process is because i worked for a really big corporate and so it had these things in place, but then we were working for this small business and it was fascinating. And it made me think about how many people have got people employed because they don't know how to offboard people correctly. We, we see this all the time. I mean, you know, just go on Google and search, how do I, how do I terminate someone? The, the mm -hmm. advice is, is pretty wide. Um, it's not a very specific and clear process. And even a lot of the tools that we found that people use to, you know, the, the, the payroll tools don't actually give you a lot of the detail that you need to consider when you're about to offboard someone from protected classes to how to think about severance and how to calculate it. So we're really trying to sort of demystify the process and hopefully put some power back into managers' hands uh, so they can make the right call for the business and you know, know how to do a performance improvement plan and, and document the process. And of course, by the way, that's why having the right documentation in the first place is so important because it sets you up for, for hopefully a successful um, and compliant offboarding process. Mm. I'm going to switch gears because this absence of paperwork, I know that I've got my own business is making me nervous, Max. So I'm going <laughs> to... Well, it's, and it's so exciting, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's that thing, isn't it? You, you want to build your company, you want to go and build your new product, you want to get all your new right. clients in and, and, and you're not doing the kind of nuts and bolts. And um, yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know. It's like wanting to paint your house before you've built the right foundations. Um, I think right, it's probably right. the way of looking. Um, well, it's a great segue into, you know, a lot of this is EPL risk. Now what we're about to talk about is all the DNO exposures that mm. the last week have, have educated us all on. Absolutely. And I think education is exactly the kind of angle I've wanted to come into this conversation because, you know, you and your team have actually put out some what I thought was really strong content on, on LinkedIn, <laughs> which is how we connected via the, the, the fabulous Brett that you've got working for you. Um, yeah, I saw that you'd done a, you'd prepared a list of recommendations for founders and business leaders on how to avoid exposure from financial risk from bank volatility. I thought your, your head of underwriting, uh, produced this kind of, uh, something SVB crisis founders need for a DNO and, and you've just, and you've done the post SVB cyber alert. So you've really produced some really quality content, which I wish more businesses to do, you know, you're uniquely positioned to answer this issue. Um, so I thought it'd be a great conversation, um, but we're sitting here and I won't say that I know it intimately, but I followed it quite closely because as we discussed coming on air, a lot of our partners um, that we do recruitment for had their money tied up in SVB uh, because it is so intrinsic with that startup community. So, but before we dive into that, I thought it might be great if you could just, I mean, I'm sure people have been following, but really kind of just explain what was the story with Silicon Valley Bank? What, what unfolded there? So, you know, it really goes back a few years because, um, and during COVID and probably the sort of the heady, the heady days of, of, of VCs investing in companies and, and valuations going up, a lot of money flowed into SVB. So essentially it had grown really quickly. Deposits increased. 
Um, and they started to move those holdings into mortgage-backed securities and trying to find a way to get a little extra return on all of these deposits. Um, and unfortunately, when interest rates started going up, the value um, of those, those securities they invested in started going down. And so back last week, there was a report that came out, um, basically a press release that many of us saw that said that there was a, a $1.8 billion loss that SVB was reporting. And that sort of began a very, very quick conversation among a lot of VCs and a lot of founders as to the financial health. Um, and at that point, we were probably overthinking it, but solvency of the bank. I find that fascinating, though, because... It's like, uh, I love an analogy and I'm searching for a suitable one, but, you know, it is kind of shooting yourself in the foot, right? VCs, quite often startup community, encourage people to bank with Silicon Valley Bank because they're very supportive of startup environments. They then post this loss, which is a big loss, but in the world of banking, it's probably, a, you know, let's be honest, a moderate rounding error that you expect them to bounce back from. Um and then what we know is bad for banks is if everyone starts dramatically, you know, going after that and withdrawing all their cash, which essentially is what turned out to be happening. So I found that you it's sort of an unusual conversation for VCs to sort of spreading like wildfire, telling their people to take their money out of the bank is, is I, I, I don't know, is, it, am I, is that, is, is that a wrong no, observation? You're absolutely right. It was such a, it was such a surreal, like series of events, right? We, we mm. saw the news, some email threads started. We all were sort of doing our analysis. We're a small, we're a very tight-knit community. I mean, this is one of the reasons SVB is such an amazing partner is that mm. they help build the community. I mean, on whether it was sponsored events or ski trips, I've met so many founders and investors that are now close friends because of Silicon Valley Bank. And so we all care deeply about the bank doing well. The, the challenge was suddenly it became a prisoner's dilemma overnight. Um, yeah. Some people started pulling their money out or speculating. That speculation turned into, you know, reports that people were pulling their money out. And then some VCs told their companies to pull money. Others told them to stay. And the challenge is no one wanted to be the last person out. As soon as that started, it was sort of an internal contagion in our community. Um, and it, it really sucked, honestly, because you were watching this very fast snowball um, at one point, I think, you know, Bloomberg and some others reported on some of these email threads that some of us were having, um, and that just per precipitated the, the collapse. I think by, by Friday, um, something like 45 or $49 billion had been withdrawn from the bank. Um, wow. And so, again, as, as board members, you also have a fiduciary responsibility to protect your company, to make sure that your deposits are safe. Um, and so I think many of us rushed to you know, even if we didn't have significant exposure to Silicon Valley Bank directly, we were still opening other bank accounts to make sure we could spread our funds out. Um, yeah. and, and, and we did the same. And that kind of continued to go on throughout the weekend, uh, right? We were all just trying to find a way to, to move funds into some of the bigger banks in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard some unique horror stories in, you know, the U.K. and SureTech who literally just moved all of their money into Silicon Valley Bank. Um days before uh, like a week before and then it, it was only because it was so recent they still had the old account open that they could get it out and um yeah it's it's been some horror stories but is, is insurtech uniquely impacted by svb is there something in the nature of, uh, of our industry that's that's uniquely affected by this no i mean it really it, it affects every single company that had a deposit at the bank um and this this is these are 
AI companies, these are biotech companies, healthcare companies, you know, fintech, insurtech, doesn't matter, enterprise software, um, and obviously many VC funds. There was even, I heard reports of a school that had a bank account with Silicon Valley Bank in the in the US Midwest. So this bank really is, you know, was the 17th largest bank, I believe, in the US. So it really its its reach was not just the US, even it was even in the UK, as you alluded to. Um, many founder friends in the UK were affected too. So um, now very much not insure tech only, but the bank also offered really wonderful, their fintech team offered pretty unique products um, that supported insure tech companies and fintech companies in doing their job. Excuse me, it was the, it's the 16th largest bank. So second largest okay. bank failure in US history. Wow, wow. Um, so what's the state of play in the US? Because in the UK, HSB have stepped in, um, shored up all the deposits and, and and the purchase that are on the business um what's happening in the us in the response to what's happening so first of all i think the the uk should be commended because the outcome was frankly a better outcome than in the us um the fact that you have a solvent bank taking over um silicon valley bank it's, it sounds like you're going to keep getting the same great services um just with sort of another brand in the us the fdic stepped in um as soon as friday uh to really like backstop what was going on. Um, the big question over the weekend, this past weekend, was would depositors be made whole? Um, and, and what exactly would that backstop look like? Uh, and fortunately, a really, really, um, I think, constructive decision was made on, on Sunday by the Treasury and the FDIC um, and the Fed. And the report that the decision was they would backstop depositors 100%. But unfortunately, you know, shareholder, shareholders were, were wiped out. Um, and so a lot of people lost money, including, you know, Silicon Valley Bank employees who probably had a lot of savings in the bank for for decades. Um, so very unfortunate in some cases, but a really, really important thing was done, which which was not just support depositors who were in Silicon Valley Bank, um, as well as there was another bank that, that failed. Um, I think it was Signature Bank on, on Monday, but it was also to shore up the regional banking system in the U.S., I think one people thing people don't realize is that across the world, a lot of countries only have a few large banks. In the U.S., we actually have just about 5,000 banks. So there's tons of these small regional community banks all over. And there's a lot of concentration of, of specific industries in those, in those banks. And I was talking to friends all across the U.S. over the weekend and finding out that they were just beginning to think, hmm, maybe I should open an account with somebody else. And so you could see the contagion starting to starting to spread. So fortunately, that hundred percent backstop, I think, really slowed things down. And even on Monday, a bank many of us um, knew, First Republic Bank, um, I think, was saved as a result of that decision. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I was talking about it with a friend and saying, you know, we were talking about it as it was transpiring, and I was saying it has to be backed up because you know we hate saying it's too big to fail, but you know, the US economy is so synonymous with startup, startup culture, tech startup culture, that that were that to be removed, there's just a vacuum in this part of your economy, which is which is very specifically about, you know, innovation and and and, and then you kind of lose your place at the table. If there's if there's no money, there's no fuel and there's no fuel to kind of have that community thriving. Oh absolutely. I mean SVB in this community is incredibly strategic in the US economy. I think the big question now is who is our bank? <laughs> mm -hmm. Right? Because this was 
I can't I can't stress enough the relationships we had and how they were sort of a a glue for the for the ecosystem. There's even a there's even a collection of VCs right now, some of the the biggest best known in the U.S. who are trying to get people to put money back into Silicon Valley Bank to see if we can bring it back from the ashes um, and go basically from receivership. So it's an interesting moment. I think a lot of people are even questioning: Should I move my money out or actually keep it in the bank? sort of as a sign of support um mm. you know the other thing I, I just want to mention that we all learned about we all knew about it but we didn't quite respect how important it was which was fdic coverage on an account so in the u.s there's a quarter million dollars worth of insurance that you have on an individual bank account and now the big question across the u.s and it's really a treasury management question that we none of us have ever been thinking about because you know of course our our bank accounts are safe um, yeah. is how much coverage do we have? And if you're a, if you're a company, unlike an individual, um, of course, I'm sure there are many wealthy people who have more than a quarter million, but not many of us do uh, in, a, in a bank account. But if you're a company, you have, you have millions in an account. So you're, you are just woefully underinsured. And so now we're all trying to figure out what our fiduciary responsibility is to protect that money, to make sure we can make payroll and have enough money for the next month, the next two months of operating expenses, but also where we should put that money, the, the, the excess money to, to make sure it's protected. And this is sort of an ongoing conversation right now. Well, I, I know we've obviously discussed fiduciary responsibility, but with a founder, is, is that is that their only specific liability when the bank fails or, or, or is it more than that? No, there's really, I mean, there's three core things at least that we uh, we've identified. I mean, one is you do have to make payroll. Payroll is a critical thing for a board um, for a board to ensure. And in fact, I I heard rumors that a few board members were stepping down. I don't think this would actually protect you, but they were stepping down over the weekend because they were concerned about their exposure um, to companies not making payroll on Monday. So, but that's number one. You got to you got to pay your employees. Um, you also have to make sure that if you've if you've taken um, money from customers, that you make good on the services that you've taken money for. Um, and that's that's a real that's a real exposure. And then finally, you have you know a fiduciary obligation to take care of you know shareholder interests and 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 really protect those funds. And so, kind of all three of those dynamics have been playing out this week. Um, the payroll one was probably the highest stress uh, issue because you know the fifteenth was yesterday, and so there were a number of companies who just there was a pull that was coming out of the bank and it had to had to hit uh, people's accounts. Uh, and unfortunately, payroll companies also used SVB in some cases. And, you know, I think, I don't know another time when people have been changing their bank account numbers this quickly in a few days. So this even hit the cyber. This is why we put out sort of some some cyber um, uh, education, because basically bank account numbers are flying, flying around the country in emails. New ACHs are being set up. Basically, everything's changing. And that's a really yep. dangerous time for companies. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. Um, I, I thought your list of recommendations, and obviously it's an article, and we can we can share that and we can put it to. But I thought it'd be good to go through that on on this call, maybe not as comprehensively, but but I thought that was incredible because you know you did this list of recommendations for founders and leaders on how to avoid future exposure to this financial risk from bank volatility. What what yeah. can people do to kind of prepare? Yeah. I mean, obviously be aware of how much FDIC coverage you have across different accounts. Um, some, some banks are offering sort of their own version of like 
automated sweep accounts. So they'll take the cash you put in the bank. They'll then uh, put it into other accounts, multiple accounts at other banks to increase that FDIC coverage. Um, that's at least what one of our banks is doing. Um, really, the key is make sure your FDIC coverage is as high as you can manage. I don't recommend having 30 or 40 accounts. That's, that would be uh, a disaster. Um, you know, make sure you have multiple banks that you bank with. So you, you're in a position to move funds around should there be any kind of, any kind of issue. Um, and, you know, have an operating account that you manage for your, your monthly expenses, but then have another account, uh, potentially another bank where you store maybe a um, preponderance of, of the funds you have. And then, and then finally, just be, you know, be smart about how you invest in securities. So, as I mentioned before, money market funds are a good a good option, but I think we have to be careful about sort of this duration risk. And it's it's a, it's a ironic because this is sort of what happened to Silicon Valley Bank too. If you invest in a security that you can't is not immediately liquid, then that could also become a greater risk for you. So I would advise I would advise companies to just be careful about how they manage treasury, especially if they're not a CFO, they haven't been doing this in the past. I certainly haven't been doing this in the past. We're all kind of learning in real time. So don't create new risk trying to avoid the risk we now know about. There are probably some unknowns that are worth um, you know, being careful around. But but yeah, it's really about um it's really spreading some of your risk out and um and sort of being aware of of what kind of securities you're investing in. It's great advice. I I, I felt I felt weirdly smug, but in an accidental way that I've managed to. I've managed to have like four or five different bank accounts um, <laughs> for my business, but mainly because I very publicly on LinkedIn was having such a problem with, um, and I'll name and shame, they're not going to listen to the podcast, Barclays. <laughs> Barclays. When I was at ITC in Vegas, uh, my Barclays card just cancelled. And, and that's our primary card as our primary bank account. And they didn't get me a new card. And bear in mind the way that payments are now taken. So we used to do direct debits out of your account. Now, most services and SaaS products for a business of my size that actually run off your card and card payment. So that yeah. failed. So all of our systems are failing. Um, they didn't give me a new card till January. So uh, September that. So at one point <laughs> I was on, I was on hold for my, and it took me 26 hours on the phone to resolve this issue. So I was on hold for them till the, I don't know, the 15th hour of this. And I went, right, I'm going to run an experiment on the new digital bank. And I chose Starling. I've got a really good business account. Mm. And I'm going to see if I can set up an account quicker than I can get through to Barclays Bank. Um, and I managed it. So now I have got at least two of those accounts there and I opened another one subsequently. But uh, you're so ahead but, of the that, curve. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean it was it was it was accidental. Um thank you for walking us through that. I think that's I think that's kind of um that's really useful information. And I think it's that's the thing. I think as as startup business owners or as people kind of going into their first venture, and even if you've been in a venture before, but you're doing it in a different environment, there's so much you don't know. Um, and and particularly, I always talk about, when we talk in the recruitment sense, I always talk about the what I call the kind of CFO dilemma, which is if you're a business owner and then your business gets to a point where you now need a CFO, you probably don't know what a good CFO looks like. You've never been a CFO. You've hmm. never been a finance person. It's very difficult to hire someone that you don't know the skill sets. You know, you kind of, you might lean into maybe their kind of qualifications or anything else. But um, 
it, it plays out in the in your kind of knowledge of your risk exposure as well. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And and it can be quite simplistic and and it seems like a really sophisticated solution that you've offered. But yeah, the challenges are growing your business and and I'm sitting here going, I really want to look at all my HR files and make sure that's in order. I mean, this is the challenge that we all have as founders and business owners, mm. right? We're all mm. kind of sitting in the seat for 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 a few days, for a few months, for a few years before figuring out who we're gonna hire. Cause like certainly I'm not the best at many of the functions that my company has to perform, right? My job is to hire great people. So, yeah. and hopefully yeah. have tools that help you avoid all the gaps and knowledge that you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, big, I'm a big buyer of tools to try and help that. So um, <laughs> I, 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 wanna, I wanna wrap things up here because we don't wanna um, overstay our welcome, but, um, but you know, you did raise a significant seed round. I saw that there's about 15 people in the business now. Um, what does um always like to end on this kind of what does 2023 look like for you? You know, we've got a not large runway of the year to go. Um, what can we look for from the Anzen business? I mean, we're, we're really in just rapid growth mode right now. We're signing up brokers, um, retail brokers all across the US. You know, our goal as a business is to really get a great high quality both insurance product and uh, we call it proactive insurance, so a proactive services product in the hands mm -hmm. of brokers nationwide. We're mm -hmm. licensed in 37 states, probably soon to be 40. Um, so yeah, 2023 is just ramping um, what's already a really fast-growing business, adding more great people to our team, underwriters, engineers, um, and and hopefully doing a lot of education in the market. Uh, that's and it's been a, it's been an absolute blast, honestly. There's that moment when you're building a company when things start to really work and and things accelerate. And this is why we do this, right? It's like uh, it's like running a race. And you know, I've been watching a lot of Formula One recently, and it feels a bit like being on a race track. And I'm sure it's just as thrilling in some ways. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm smiling because I just uh, <laughs> just secured a head of engineering recruitment to come and join my business, and I'm like, that's that's that feels like one of those. <laughs> I've been looking for this person for about a year. So um, it feels like that moment for me. So I hope it is. And uh, I hope we have a conversation about that late down the line. But Max, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you sort of jumping onto this so quickly. And and um, yeah, I want to thank uh, you know, Brett and your team for getting this together for us. So yeah, really appreciate you being a guest on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.